Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode in our new series, AE History. This is a collaboration between me and John from Defense Bulletin. And for this episode, well actually we're going to start doing a series on World War One, And before we get into the war itself, we're going to do a round of episodes looking at the major players in the lead up to the war. So for our first episode today, we will be looking at Germany leading up to World War One, really from the, the formation of Germany itself as, as a unified nation state, going all the way up until 1914, the start of World War One. So I'm super excited to, to start this with you guys. Um, this is actually John's idea. I'm really, really glad he uh, thought of it and brought it up to me. We're both super excited to get this out. And I really hope you guys enjoyed because we had a lot of fun reporting it. Before we get started, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate, and we will head into the episode. Okay, so I'm here with John with the Defense Bulletin, and this is going to be the first episode in our series on World War One. And to start off the series, we're basically going to go around the major players of the war and do like a pre-World War One sort of episode. So this one today is on Germany, you know, pre-World War One Germany, uh, talking about what it was like. And that's that's what we're doing. Yeah. How's it going, John? It's going great. It's great that um we can finally do this. Um we kind of came what did we come up with this idea a little while ago, about a month and a half, two months ago. Yeah, it was actually your idea, man. I'm really glad uh I'm really glad you brought it up because I think this will be really cool. I'm actually really excited to do these. Yeah, like this kind of niche stuff. You know, I think that when I when I did kind of breach the subject, where I was kind of talking about the idea of that, like people kind of have. We all cover this stuff. You know, people on the bulletin as well. We all cover this stuff specifically. Like you're the you're the America's desk chief, right? But uh, you you know, when we have conversations, it's clear that people have other interests. You know, these kind of niche interests. So, trying to delve into that. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So getting into this, uh, we're pretty much going to go with Germany. Of course, at this point, Germany wasn't a, a nation state, but really right after, um, I guess, the fall of the Holy Roman Empire, I'll briefly mention the French Revolution, and there's a reason for that, but that's pretty much the the furthest we're going back. And then, you know, lead up, I mean, pretty much until uh where the war starts so getting started here um obviously we're looking at early to mid 19th century 1800s so we have a lot of technological advancements right and a lot of industrialization so for example looking at advancements uh as far as electricity goes right you have lighting a poem in cities becoming possible you also have changes in communications the telegraph is invented and that 
you know, start to be pretty widely used and it makes long range communications possible without, you know, having some dude on a horse like Paul Revere. Right. And that of course <laughs> changes the news cycle too, right. You could get news instantly where, exactly. you know, Way as opposed faster. to again, like Paul Revere telling you the British are coming. Right. It definitely yeah. changes then, things. Exactly. Um, and, and I think also, I think government involvement, right. Government support and, of, of certain industries, right. That idea of the government's going to support an industry, not just leave it to die or thrive on its own. We are uh, Germany did uh, kind of, uh, introduced multiple policies that kind of supported and advanced uh, things like steel working and the industrialization that really kind of catapulted that. Yeah, and these industries become really, uh, really important to Germany, right, especially when you look at, uh, and we'll get into this in a bit, but, you know, like the militarization that comes after, uh, you know, the Franco-Prussian War in specific, right, and the rapid industrialization yep. in Germany, I yeah. mean, really becomes the industrial powerhouse of Europe, even more so than the than uh, Great Britain, you know, and exactly. they have industries that are very important, you know, shipbuilding, um, building of other armaments, you know, rifles, cannons, you know, uh, clothes, whatever you have. Yeah, and, and honestly, even earlier than Great Britain, you know, they kind of applied the whole idea of industrialization and certain different methods and practices in the industry of production to to uh, war fighting and to the making of armaments and things, right? We see that with Krupp, uh, the, you know, companies like Krupp and other companies, we see that um, in the production of the needle dry rifle. So uh, definitely, uh, you know, definitely a powerhouse in that sector. Yeah. And, you know, um, obviously, uh, Karl Marx, the the founder of communism and, and Marx's, Marx's uh, thought, excuse me, I mean, you know, he's a German guy, right? There's exactly. Yeah. The fact that this idea comes from Germany is not a it's not a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. That, I think also one other thing to touch on when it comes to like uh, the different industries, uh, well, industrialization. And I think uh, things that like uh, kind of pushed that forward was, you know, the railroad. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, earlier before, I believe, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the, the railroad systems increasing. Um, and I think obviously that's going to, um, in the same way that, you know, population increased like uh, in the United States, how that kind of increased. Um, you know, buildings, you know, building heights and stuff like that. And that's how, you know, Andrew Carnegie got really rich in the same way, railroad production, you're going to need those steel rods. And so we need more steel and faster, right? So uh, things like the uh, introduction of railroad systems and stuff in the early and to mid 1800s um, definitely catapulted that as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, yeah, Matt, that makes possible the mass mobilization of, of militaries, right? Um, and that, of course, helps out. I mean, it helps out all countries that are able to able to facilitate that sort of thing. But it especially helps out Germany in uh, the 19th century and, and in the 20th century as well. And then looking at industrialization, um, obviously, you have the steam engine that really starts getting used in the early 18th century in England, 1700s. But by 1769, James Watt invents uh, the steam condenser, which increases production in coal and iron mines, right, which Germany uh, relied on heavy, heavily, excuse me, at the points we're talking about today. This leads to an increase in demand for coal, of course, iron and steel products. Uh, you have the railway that increases the speed of transit rapidly, as you were saying, between 1848 and 1870. Railroad networks in Germany, or I'm sorry, in German states, increased exponentially. Uh, Prussia industrializes, as I was saying, they use steelworks to advance their shipbuilding industry and build cannons. Again, very crucial to uh, militarist Prussia at this time. And industrialization also allows for mass armament, uh, like I was yeah, saying exactly. as well. Yeah, 
Exactly. And another thing, right, you know, you, uh, you know, we kind of have, uh, we were talking before about how, you know, industrial relation can, can lead to, you know, mass movements of people from villages. So we can start to see people, you know, leaving outside of the areas where you were born, right, for the longest time. Um, and mm-hmm. we, we kind of saw this uh, change earlier in history. I'm not saying that industrialization is the reason for this, but the idea of, uh, right, railroads and, um, and uh, you know, uh, the increased thoroughfares throughout Germany help people move around more, right? So, um, and I think that, which helps also like down the line, create this idea of national unity, right? I'm not just from this one village, right? Uh, I'm not from, you know, wherever, right? I'm from, uh, even more now, people can say, oh, I'm from Bavaria, I'm from, um, I'm from the Hergenzoller Empire or something like that. Um, but, uh, and even now as I can uh, move out of my own state, you know, uh, I can leave the country. So when people ask where I'm from, they don't want to know what state in my country I'm from. They want to know what country I'm from. And so that that kind of pushes, you know, that whole idea that kind of helps um, by, by allowing people to be able to move around easier um, instead of having to hop on your mule or your horse and drag that thing, you know, hundreds of miles. You can just hop on the train and boom, you're there. And what was once a month uh, trip is maybe a couple of days. So um, I think that helped, you know, create the idea of national unity, definitely. Now that's way long down the road because at the time we're speaking right now, um, just to clarify, right, it's still Prussia, right? Prussia is kind of still that main German power. There's kind of two of them. There's uh, Prussia and, and Austria are the two major uh, German powers. Um, they're kind of uh, the predecessors to the, uh, after the Holy Roman Empire broke up. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Going back to what you were saying about, you know, people being able to move around this this industrialization um it, you know, leads to factories being built in cities and stuff like that. And you're really seeing not a whole lot of jobs for people in rural areas. Um, and, you know, as more people move to the city, that like further perpetuates the issue, right? More people move in less and less jobs in rural areas. So, you know, what do people do? They they move. They move from small, you know, villages and towns to cities to look for work. And the jobs that they're getting are, are low paying and the working conditions are like abysmal. And you have this new social class emerge, the proletariat, you know, may, some of you may have heard of it. Uh, and yeah, the average life expectancy for, for this new social class of industrial workers is just shy of 40 years, which, you know, it's not really a lot. And one person that observes this new wave of industrialization in Europe is a Prussian writer by the name of Friedrich Engels, who you may have heard of as well. He writes about his disgust towards the ownership class, otherwise known as the bourgeois. And that's where we are in Germany. And by 1914, uh, Germany, which at this point is is a nation state, the German Empire, I should say, um, had become the industrial and cultural capital of Europe. Yeah, exactly. And and so this kind of segue is pretty good. Uh, we were talking about this just before, right, into the, um, you know, at the idea of nationalism. Uh, nationalism. Um, so uh, it it's kind of well, like, it's kind of uh, agreed upon, you know, throughout, uh, across the board that the French Revolution uh, of the, the original one in uh, 1789, that kind of brought forth the idea of nationalism. Um, uh, it, it, right. Uh, how did, essentially did it do that? I, I would say, Right, you're no longer loyal to like your lord. You're no longer somebody's peasant, right? And so, then who are you loyal to? And so then you become to have these republican esque governments. Uh, I say s because they weren't exactly republican. Um, you know, they weren't like the ancient Roman Republic. Um, but you know, they were republican as compared to the monarchies uh, or the monarchy institutional monarchies they had prior. Um, and so 
you're now loyal to the government that was created after this. Um, we saw the similar things uh, after World War, um, the First World War uh, with Germany, right? We saw the Weimar Republic come into play there. Um, uh, citizenship, right? You know, the, the idea of being a citizen and that you have rights based off of those, right? Or based on common values, language, shared history, um, and not just shared history with the village next to you, but with everybody in that realm, uh, yeah. or, or even bigger than that, right? Um, peasants and workers, right? Um, we're less uh, attracted to the idea, uh, but obviously the educated, uh, and the, uh, <laughs> I like the term that uh, we have in the notes, uh, bourgeoisie, um, which, you know, kind of uh, originally came from, uh, you know, the French, right? Uh, the, with the town of Burgess, where it was known that, uh, fun fact that the Dauphin, after the defeat at the Battle of Agincourt uh, by Henry the um, Fifth, uh, kind of retired after his father died. And, you know, this is kind of the heyday of the Hundred Years' War for England. He kind of retired to the town of Borges and just partied for like a lot. Like he partied. And that just, and so I like to personally think that that's where the name came from. I've, I've heard other people, other historians say that it's kind of inconclusive where exactly the original name came from. But I like to agree with that one the most, just for a fun fact on that word. A little but, bit um, ahead of canon. Yeah, yeah, a little bit ahead of canon, right? <laughs> just a couple hundred years. But, um, but uh, the, the it's a good point, right? How the you know the educated and the and the the bourgeoisie loved it. It's kind of like uh, we saw similar things, right, with uh, the December Revolution, right? These were all rich army officers, right? They had money, right? And so the uh, it wasn't popular the idea of nationalism at first with peasants because you don't have time to think about you know where what place I, you know do I uh, have in the country or what role do I play in you know the in the government, you know the the in the governance of, you know, myself, right? You don't have time to think about that because you're just trying to survive. Um, and so uh, nationalism helps bring about more independence. And so that then in turn, that gives the average, you know, the, the layman time to do that as well. But that's essentially why the peasants and workers were less attracted to the idea. Um, right, nationalist movements, they sparked around Europe uh, after, I think the year 1848, it's kind of the year of what they call the coups, right? The year of the coup essentially, um, in the year of revolutions, we see them sparking all over in a lot of different German states, Bavaria as well. Um, and so uh, the German states got hit really hard by that uh, in 1848. Um, German nationalists, right, they're yearning for a single united German state. This is really when we begin to see this heavily. Now, this is just pre-Bismarck. So um, uh, obviously he was alive at the time, but he wasn't he wasn't the Bismarck we all know and love. Yeah. Um, so um, after the fall of the Holy Roman Empire, that's where we began to see this, right? And that was in 1806, right? Napoleon brought about that fall um, through obviously the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and then he was eventually defeated. But uh, the um, implication for the multiple defeats he um, put upon the Austrians and the, as well the Prussians, I think the Prussians came out of that. He kind of, the, because the Prussians came out of the Napoleonic Wars uh, stronger than the Austrians, you know, it kind of tipped that balance. Then that's where we begin to see Prussia take precedent as a main German state is after those wars. Um, but uh, the Holy Roman Empire at the time of its, uh, you know, uh, dissolution was was just a loose confederation of German states, right? So it, for the for the longest time, the Holy Roman Empire wasn't really uh, it. It was very easy to like, you know, kind of do your own thing as a state uh, within within the empire, right? We see the same thing with Italy constantly them having to go down there and kind of either retake it or fighting uh, France for it, which we can get into a little in a little bit. Um, yeah, you could even compare that to sort of the periphery of the Ottoman Empire, too. I mean, look at Egypt. Ex yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, yeah, that may be in my empire. But I mean, if my um, if my capital, my seat of power is all the way in Constantinople, well, obviously, you know, they called it Istanbul. 
um, it's being able to actually, you know, rule that and govern that's going to be hard because you're now so far away where that's such a huge province. The person who's going to, you know, take hold of that, which we kind of essentially, by right, same thing with Italy, right? That's how the king of Italy was able to gain prominence and eventually gain independence because they're so far away. But the, and this is another thing we we're talking about communication, right? You're so far away. By the time you know there's a revolution going on, you know, you could be uh, out of a out of a state. So that's um, a great uh, kind of introduction to nationalism. And, and you know, just to wrap that up real quick, you know, but many Germans felt, you know, they they fought for a German constitutional state, uh, uh, kind of modeled on the first French Republic. Uh, we'll probably get into that as well when we do our French uh, pre-war episode. We're, the plan is to do pre-war episodes for all the major states, and then we'll kind of group some of the other ones together. Yeah. Um, the Vienna Congress of 1815 is a big thing. Uh, Right, so the nationalists, uh, the unit, uh, no unified German state was formed at this point, but uh, the German Confederation was formed, and this is what we kind of see Bismarck kind of taking as his little, you know, uh, as his baby essentially, and try and form this then into the German Empire, uh, that that you know we know most, uh, uh, that we that we all know about. Eighteen nineteen, right? Prussia forms the. I'm, I'm going to butcher this name, the Zollverein, right? Which is kind of like a, a, a version of kind of like the EU. Uh, I think the best explanation is a trading custom uh, for the Confederation. It create uh, it removes tariffs, standardized currency, right? So that would essentially be like the euro, right? Um, uh, increased question influence, right? And Austria, the big thing is Austria was excluded from joining. Now mm -hmm. this is where we begin to see this this age old Prussian um, uh, meddling and and met also meddling with the geopolitical and then the the political minds of, of their adversaries, right? Essentially kind of meddling so hard in their minds they start a conflict right or, or they want the conflict harder than um prussia right or, or germany not knowing that the whole time germany was planning for this so this is where we begin to see this definitely and um then but the idea of nationalism was still repressed by the german states right post vienna conference yeah yeah and you were talking about the revolutions that swept across this part of europe in 1848 1849 um really start in france i don't know why this stuff always happens in france but i don't know you gotta be you gotta be known for something like the usual right? suspect you know yeah no kidding so so nationalist revolution starts in france in 1848 and that inspires revolution in neighboring german states as well and i mean going back you kind of alluded to nationalism uh you know that that comes out of the french revolution and then napoleon's army are, is the one to spread that to the german states as well so yeah, funny how that works, but <laughs> looking at the German states, nationalists in the uh, the Grand Duchy of Baden start an uprising, and within weeks, the entire German Confederation is experiencing a revolt. Hundreds of lives were lost, you know, and all over the German states, uh, particularly in Berlin as well, hundreds of lives were lost in fighting between nationalists and government troops. Um, you know, even at this point, uh, I believe it was prince wilhelm who would go on to be a uh, villain the first but back then when he was crown prince um he ordered government troops to use cannons against protesters so he was known as the uh the prince of grape shop a fun fact yeah which is kind of uh synonymous with another someone else who has a similar grape uh grape shot uh nickname uh well i guess napoleon was the famous whip of grape shot and he used it in a very similar way against very similar uprising so yeah, yeah, fun times. So, yeah. So, so some of these German states were 
were forced by revolutionaries to appoint uh, liberal governments, you know, not liberal in the sense of like, uh, you know, MSNBC, but like, uh, you know, want to want to say, in, I think is yeah, want to say in yeah. like who, uh, who governs you. Yeah, like, exactly. You don't want to uh, be under this all, all powerful monarchy, but they forced some of these, some of these German states to appoint liberal governments and establish a, a common elected assembly among the German Confederation. That was a Frankfurt National Assembly. And really the point of that was it was supposed to establish a single German empire, right? That was that was always the goal that they were to work towards. They actually eventually proposed a smaller German empire that excluded Austria, kind of a common theme here, as yeah. you'll uh, notice. And they actually offered the crown to Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm IV. I don't know why uh, Friedrich, that's all these guys like have that in their names. That's a common theme in this yeah, episode. Or Frederick, you know. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Um, he actually refused the crown and he said that position was born of revolution, treason, and high treason. And then he also said that the legitimate crown of the German nation was dormant since 1806. Of course, he followed the Holy Roman Empire and that the only ones... Uh, who could basically give the give the authority to you know wear the crown for the German nation uh, could be Franz Joseph of Austria, Pym being Friedrich Wilhelm the Fourth, and other German nobles. Um, which is, after, which is, oh, sorry. just to butt in real quick, right? That's a really interesting point because I often think what would have changed if he had just taken that crown, yeah. right? how would history be different? Because I, I think that another reason he gave, right, was, well, essentially by saying only nobles can give this to me, right? He's saying the, the common people, right? Which he, he, once again, we see this trend of uh, kind of batting away nationalism, right? And nationalism taking over the country because if he had just, his, essentially what he was saying, right, was that the, the, the average person, the layman, the common man cannot offer this crown to me, which doesn't make any sense, right? Because, well, the people are, are telling you, we want you to govern us. Yeah. But, only, yeah, so only the people who actually have the capacity to fight fight you back can offer it to you. So it, it gets it gets really weird. Um, so it uh, it's always interesting to me what would have happened if he had taken the crown from the common people instead of uh, saying you know kind of being high and mighty. Um, but you know, I guess we'll never know. You know. Yeah, and I think I think this guy in particular uh, was very uh, he really prized his you know noble honor or whatever you want to call it. So. Yeah. Even though obviously he wanted Prussia to be the dominating power in this German confederation, he was given the chance, right? They offered him the crown and he said no, because yeah. he felt like his uh, noble honor would be, um, you know, tarnished or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. because yeah. a bunch of treasonous wanted to give him the crown. <laughs> so after German nobles fought back against the nationalist democrats the national assembly actually had to go into hiding and it was eventually disbanded the revolutions were over at least in the german states uh, one concession though that prussia did have to make to revolutionaries was establishing the prussian house of representatives and i'm going to butcher this but i believe it is the uh palais hardenberg and that it really didn't have too much power i mean they were really uh they really only existed to quote unquote advise the king. Um, so again, not a whole lot of power, but one power they did have that was that was actually a pretty important one was they had the ability to block the state budget. 
uh, Friedrich Wilhelm was not too happy about that, right? Because obviously uh, he butted heads with them for this reason quite a bit. He had this major army reform bill uh, that he wanted to pass. And actually, excuse me, this is at this point, this is uh, Wilhelm I. This is not Friedrich yeah. Wilhelm. This is Wilhelm mm-hmm. I, I believe his son had taken over. And he had this major army reform bill in 1860, fast forwarding a little bit, about a dozen years. And the House of Representatives actually rejected it, right? Which essentially they reject. They said, no, we're not going to give you the money to do this. That's how they rejected it, right? So there was a, you have a couple of years of gridlock over this between, you know, the king and, and the House of Representatives. And so the king appoints Otto von Bismarck, right, who you were talking about. And he is the prime minister at this point when he gets appointed and he's really appointed to end this gridlock. You know, that's been going on for two years and Bismarck eventually uses a loophole in the Constitution to rule without a budget. And, you know, here he is. This is the this is the beginning of uh, yeah. of Otto von Bismarck's reign. Enter Bismarck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no kidding. We are actually going to go back a little bit and we're going to the uh, Schleswig Wars. So when the German Confederation came about, not all of its rulers were actually German. The king of Denmark to the north was actually, uh, he was also the Duke of Holstein in Lauenburg, which were duchies in the German Confederation. He was also the Duke of Schleswig, which was not a part of the German Confederation, but it did have a mixed uh, German and Danish speaking population. These three duchies also provided about half of the Danish crown's economic output, which is you know a good chunk of change. And as with the rest of the region, nationalism comes into play in Denmark. Again, we're going back about a dozen years again to these revolutions, 1848, 1849. Dane nationalists wanted a firmly defined Danish state that ended at the Eder River, which was the border between uh, Schleswig and Holstein, right? German nationalists in the two duchies insisted that Schleswig-Holstein was actually one territory. They were not two separate territories and therefore should completely uh, be in the German Confederation, right? These two sides submit their demands to uh, Danish King Frederick VII, who decides to go with the Danes. And in response, German nationalists in both duchies form a separatist government in defiance of the Danish king. And this is all happening again in the midst of these 1848 revolutions across Europe. In early March 1848, a group of German students led by uh, Prince Frederick of Noor occupied the fortress of Rendsburg along the Schleswig-Holstein border. Local soldiers basically had a choice whether to join the Danish army and go north or join the new rebel Schleswig-Holstein army. Individual soldiers, you know, had to make their decision, and they made that decision based on multiple factors. In some cases, you literally had families that went separate ways, right? You know, whether it be father, son, cousins, uh, you know, you name it, right? Which is reminiscent of the U.S. Civil War, right? You know, families being split up. Um, I I think um, Virginia being uh, one of those states, but, you know, you had multiple families, you know, prominent families who fought uh, with generals or, or or had had high positions under the Union, but, you know, their brothers or their cousins had, you know, they, they were fighting in the same battles um, yeah. as on opposite sides. As yeah, and, and Virginia literally split up itself, right? That's how you get West Yeah, exactly. West Virginia, that's literally how that happened. I think uh, a, a great thing to know, especially about the Schleswig-Holstein Wars, also known as the Danish Wars, I think they're also called, um, was that um, 
the Cassis belly for war changes due to nationalism, right? You can now say, hey, well, there's a lot of my, there's a lot of Germans on, on who are, um, at, there's a lot of ethnic Germans or Germans, people who speak German, right, um, on this land. So therefore, you know, we have claim over this land. Um, and, you know, it's not said that directly, right? But, you know, that's essentially the reasoning, right? And so this is one of the first wars, not the first wars, but the first um, wars in, mo in modern history that I would say we really see this as kind of the driving factor, right? At, you know, ethnicity or um, the language you speak or, you know, whether or not you're German or Danish or not, and who actually has should have hegemony over that that area. Depending yeah, I mean, on look, look at there. Ukraine. That's, I mean, literally. The same exactly. Thing. Literally the same right. thing. Yeah. Because it's very, the, the idea of that being a caste failure, that being a reason for war, um, today is very common so but uh, back then before it was like hey you know why are you going to war well my lord told me to you know so uh, but nationalism brings into the whole idea and, rep and more republican states bring into the um uh, you know parliamentary states as well um bringing that in, in the whole idea is right i'm fighting for my country right i'm fighting because we deserve to we, we deserve to own this land and not you so that, that that's another thing to note yeah, and in, in late March 1848, both sides, you know, being the Danes and these German nationalists, German rebels, they asked Prussia for assistance. Prussia warns the Danes, hey, do not move, move your forces south, right? Prussia, you know, obviously sides with the Danes. Public opinion in Prussia is supporting the Germans, and the Prussian government sees an opportunity to restore its image. Again, this is during the revolutions, right? So, hey, you know, we we need to we need to look good, exactly. right? Because we're getting embarrassed right now. And we also a unifying cause always helps, right? You know, a unified cause against one enemy always helps unify a nation. Um, you, we see this, uh, arguably, we see this happening as we speak right now in Israel. Um, yeah, and we uh, were talking about like, that literally yesterday with the yesterday with the in the bulletin review. review. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, this definitely, definitely a huge thing, right? Which and all this is because, right? Circling back to nationalism, right? You couldn't, you would, you couldn't do that, right? And like, say, oh well, we all hate them because we're Germans. It's Germans against them, right? Um, it, it's it would if, if people were doubting fighting you, right? It was it's harder to get, I think, nobles to get to my side because they they know the inner workings of geopolitics, right? They understand, but your average layman. It's very simple to tell them, hey, we're Germans. They're not. Let's go fight them, you know, because yeah. they did such and such a thing to us. So. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying, they obviously they side with the German nationalists. And on April 4th, the German Confederation uh, basically gets a contingent of troops together led by Prussia. And they enter uh, Schleswig-Holstein. And then the first Schleswig war officially begins. Right. Looking at this war, uh, Prussian troops bring in some modern tech. You have modern uh, dressy needle rifles, like you mentioned briefly earlier. Right. Yep. And that's superior to the rifles that are that are being fielded by uh, by the Danish forces. You also have C-42 cannons. They make an appearance as well. The, the issue is these were still new weapons. So the tactics yep. really hadn't adapted to their use. But, right? but they were breech loading, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was which was still um, at the time at, the, at least the time of the first Schleswig Holstein War was was still uh, a rather new thing, right? Um, let's if you a uh, good example would be uh, in a war that took place after right um, the the um, at least after the first one the uh, so the the American Civil War right they were still majority using um, uh, you know non non breech loading guns um, actually I, I not actually I think it was really only shore batteries that would have them if they even did have them at all. Um, so, uh, 
you know, I think a lot of people kind of credit the American Civil War with a lot of more, a lot more than it should be for kind of essentially being the first modern war when arguably it wasn't because it was fought like, honestly, Napoleonic Wars is how it was fought. You know, we see the Gatling gun come in, but things like the, uh, you know, the C2 cannon, also some people, call it, it was a French gun, right? So it was more so, uh, I think more people know it by its name, the 75 field cannon, the field gun, right? That That's what is famous. It kind of gained its big fame in, in the First World War um, to be used as an anti-tank. I think it was one of the first anti-tank uh, guns uh, ever. So uh, we see that in the needle dries uh, rifle or the needle dries gun, also known as the Zundel, Zundel Gewehr, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, or the Zundel Gewehr. I, I, I tried to <laughs> pronounce it so many times in practicing earlier, and it was messing with me. Um, but this is also something else, uh, a breech-loading rifle. Now, we saw these in the American Civil War as well, but they were used, obviously, the, the, the uh, needle dries gun is one of the first uh, to have this. Um, and, you know, we see this in the Battle of Koningrath as well, used, if I'm correct, against um, the Austrians to great effect. Same thing with the breech-loading cannons as well. So They did, yeah. Um, and again, like I was saying, tactics really hadn't uh, caught up with these new weapons, but they would eventually, right? This is kind exactly. of uh, yeah. know, testing ground, I guess you could yeah. say. So after months of fighting in this war, a truce is signed in August 1848, but... The fighting breaks out again in April uh, 1849, and then mid-year 1849, Danish revolutionaries, again, revolutions are going on all across Europe, right? That, that hasn't stopped at this point. Revolutionaries in Dane force the king to make concessions, and Denmark becomes a constitutional monarchy, right? At the same time, again, revolutions are still going on in these German states, yeah. Fast forwarding to 1850, uh, Denmark and the German Confederation finally signed a truce and the Germans in Schleswig-Holstein lose the support of the German Confederation. Denmark goes on a large offensive against the, the rebel forces, the German forces, and they earn a partial victory. Uh, Denmark, for all intents and purposes, wins this first war and left the areas independent but still under the Danish king. And this was, you know, it was always a kind of point of contention. So yeah. fast forwarding to 1863, uh, day nationalist, again, uh, nationalism coming back, right? They regain power because, again, Denmark is a constitutional monarchy at this point, right? Yeah. They have a parliament. So these nationalists uh, regain power in the parliament in actually the three years leading up to this point. So they gained power in 1860. Fast forwarding to 63, they wa they wanted, excuse me, uh, Schleswig to basically assimilate the German minority, right? Christian, uh, Christian the Ninth, the King of Denmark, accepted the nationalist plan and violated the peace protocol from the first war. Uh, Prussian, Austrian, and Hanover troops respond. They march in the Holstein without a fight. They give Denmark an ultimatum to withdraw the November Constitution, which is the one uh, Christian the ninth approved saying like hey it's yeah. going to be our national policy to assimilate the german speakers in this area they have this ultimatum to withdraw the constitution the danes don't and the germans march on schleswig in 1864 prussia and austria won a quick war before the other european powers could intervene you know european powers are, are becoming wary of these powerful german states austria and prussia yeah. Right. Um, I know Russia was a concern. I think France is a concern. Right. You had all these 
of the countries in the area. So that's why they want a quick war, right? They don't they don't want anybody to be able to intervene. And the war was quick and the Germans won. Denmark had inferior equipment and they really got complacent after the first war. The political class often overruled commanders on the ground, which, you know, uh, should go without saying, but that's not really smart to do. Denmark was also hoping for other powers to intervene again, but didn't realize that the regional dynamic had actually changed a bit since the first war. Russia was less influential, uh, and it also owed Prussia because Prussia helped put down a Polish rebellion in 63 the year prior. Britain was close to Prussia as well, or closer to Prussia, I should say, with the marriage of Queen Victoria's daughter to Prussian Crown Prince uh, Friedrich Wilhelm, and that's why nobody really intervened. And at the end of the day, you had 8,000 deaths on both sides, and Prussia and Austria gained joint control over the areas. Yeah, and, and it's, it's just to piggyback off that, uh, a lot of people, you know, you know, so how did this catch, uh, you know, these other great powers to off guard, right? So the Crimean War did just end before, kind of in the interim period, the Crimean War is kind of taking place in the interim period between both uh, both of the Schleswig-Holstein Wars. And so Russia, is, you know, their power is extremely sacked, right? They've, they've just gone through the, you know, this massive blockade of their ports and everything. So they're still right, gaining power. So Russia is no longer something that they have to worry about. So this is why Prussia and Austria are able to marshal their forces and put so much focus on another area. Because prior to that, right, there was the whole idea was right. We, when Russia kind of reaches a certain level of power, we all put aside our differences and we go smack them down again real quick. And so that smackdown had just happened, and so that's why Russia was so was wasn't influential at the point. Um, obviously, they'll they'll kind of have a bit of a resurgence later. So um, yeah, yeah, you could say uh, that. Um, so now we start to see this kind of disagree. This is where the, the disagreements between Austria and Prussia have kind of already been happening, right? Because since the Napoleonic Wars, Austria has not had the same power, right? The Habsburgs have not had the same power within the German states as that they had before. So Austria and Prussia, initially, they they uh, disagree how to govern the territories, right? Austria wanted them independent. Prussia wanted them all annexed, right? And and just where just to interrupt real quick, I should have pointed it out. That at this point, when the second war comes about, this is when uh, Otto von Bismarck is in power. He wasn't in yep, power for exactly. the first one, but by the time the uh, second one comes around, he is in power and he wants a powerful Prussia. So that's you uh, know, that's what we have going on. Yeah. Here. And, and he wants and, and obviously his end goal is the German state. So it makes sense why Prussia would want to annex these territories, whereas Russia, Austria would rather just govern them where they would whether independent. Um, yeah, uh, Bismarck so. was a. I mean, he was a smart man, right? He he understood mm. that you could really only hold off the nationalists for so long, right? Obviously, it, it wasn't uh, ideal from his point of view, right? But you had these national nationalist revolutions all over Europe, right? And even though um, the revolutions died down, the idea never really went away. And he understood that eventually nationalism is going to make its way again to Germany and, and it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be victorious, right? So from yeah. his point of view, um, you know, if nationalism is going to happen, if it's going to take a take a hold on Germany, then I might as well be the be the one to control how that happens. Exactly, and kind of steer it my own way. 
um, and so he can benefit the most. And it's always great to be as as obviously every monarch or every person in power learned um, in the first half of the 18th century and in, in, in the late uh, 17th, um, not century, but uh, 1700s, they all learned that uh, it's best to be on the right side of a revolution. So, because uh, you know, last thing you want is getting your head lobbed off um, or shot uh, with the firing squad. So, um, so, so we're at this point, right? Austria and Prussia disagreed. Um, so now we start to see Prussia with their back channeling, the famous Bismarck back channeling, right? If you want to give it a nickname. Um, in 1866, Prussia signs a secret deal with Italy um, to hit Austria from the south and distract, essentially distract them to do a diversionary offensive while Prussia was sweeping from the north and uh, obviously finished the deal and hit Vienna. Um, Italy was promised uh, Vento in the papal stage, right? So Italy at this point is a big deal to mention is that, but remember, Italy isn't actually um, a, a unified state, I believe, if I'm correct at this point, right? So yeah. Italy isn't technically Italy there, you know, it's Italian states, um, not necessarily like the, the era of Venice and, and, and Milan and, and uh, you know, the other states and, and Verona, when, when, that's a little bit, that's still way before this, but they're still not a unified Italy. Yeah, they, uh, they don't necessarily have a king that has uh, wields any power either, really. Yeah, they're still under the kind of the tutelage of uh, Austria at this point, which is why it's in their best interest to kind of make this deal with Prussia. Um, this is uh, in in walks Napoleon III now, right? Where for the longest time, Napoleon, the name Napoleon, you know, you know, um, made the the hearts quake of all Europeans. Um, but obviously, he's been gone for a while. He's he's been dead now. Um, but his uh, Napoleon III, uh, was his relative, his son, right? Um, who um. Wait, no, it was his nephew. Yeah, nephew, Napoleon yeah. III was his son, his nephew. Yeah, sorry, I had it right the second time. Um, he was not involved in the plan, but he, he wants France to, uh, he's recently come to power in France as well. He was, he want, he needs a war, right? He needs a war. Obviously, it's kind of the, the age old thing of I'm new to power. I'm a monarch. What's my first thing to do? We've seen this since ancient Rome. The first thing you do is, right, uh, we saw, um, we saw Crassus go out into Parthia and get wrecked because he thought he would go out there and defeat Parthia. But no, obviously he lost the battle. But if he had won, he would have come back and been like the top guy in the triumvirate. It's the same thing for Napoleon. He needs that legitimacy. And the quickest way to do that is generally war and winning it. Um, so he wanted to push uh, He wanted to push France and their borders to the Rhine River. Um, so uh, Bismarck, he couldn't accept Austria's plan for Schleswig-Holstein. This is coming back to the disagreement between how to govern um, the, the new uh, newly acquired territories and the Danish wars. And so uh, he accused Austria of rearming without proof. Now, the funny thing, though, is he's been rearming this whole time. He's been arming, honestly, not even rearming. They, Prussia's been arming this whole time. Um, they never really did um, unarm, just the wrong word. They never really um, died. The proliferation of weapons never died down. Um, so the Prussians marched into Holstein and Austria, knowing uh, that they didn't really necessarily have the wherewithal to fight back, they withdrew without a fight. The next day, Prussia proposed to amend the Confederation Constitution, once again, excluding Austria, right? This common theme comes back even more prevalent now. Uh, it doesn't work, and so Prussia leaves. Uh, so while Austria backed down, it didn't, it didn't necessarily achieve, achieve the end goal they wanted. Uh, the German Confederation, right? Now, this is the German Confederation made way early on. Um, they declare war on Prussia, right? Obviously, Austria leading the, leading the, um, leading the charge in that known as the Seven Weeks War. So a few states uh, in the north uh, side with, so, sorry about that, uh, side with uh, Austria, I mean Prussia, and everyone else side with Austria. So looking at this before, you know, the war even starts, you know, onlookers are going to think, okay, well, Austria is going to have this one, right? It's, um, the Battle of Habsburg, Bohemia, right? Habsburg is a, um, 
just for a quick note, you know, that Habsburg is a common thing coming with up. It's the Habsburg Empire, right? It's a family that was for hundreds of years. They've been around. They they were are probably the most prolific rulers of the Holy Holy Roman Empire. Um, uh, so the Prussians had the needle dry spells. This is the guns we were talking the dry needle guns, and Austria did. And Austria um, still had older version uh, rifles, and only some of them had breech, and only some of these rifles were breech loading. And so this is where we begin to see well Austria might have had overmatch right on a tactical and operational level. They didn't have uh, the, the the correct rifles, and they still. Um, Russia, uh, Prussia has uh, at this point kind of reformed some of its operating tactics and things like that, um, whereas Austria is still kind of fighting in this old way. Um, Prussia's forces commanded by uh, General uh, General Feldmarschall, uh, Helmut von Moltke, I remember that name. Uh, uh, he comes into play during the, uh, the Great War. Uh, I believe it, that's his, uh, his nephew, though, right? Yeah. It, yeah, he's, yeah he's the one doing but uh, so w when you ever hear the same name, exact yeah, name, funny enough, same, same exactly. exact name, but generally people add on elder or it's like they'll say elder. Or, and then I think um, they'll be like uh, Helmut von Moki, the elder. And then if someone just says his name, I think they're just talking about the one from the Great War. Yeah. Uh, World War One. So uh, but he forms a lot of the, uh, the, the tactics and the operational procedures that Prussia becomes known for. So that's kind of his, his uh, brainchild. Um, Wilhelm the first. This is uh, this is the leader of Prussia. Uh, wanted a march on Vienna, but Bismarck cautioned against it, and he took the peace deal instead. Now Bismarck, this once again, Bismarck's ever scheming. He 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 kind of knows where the threshold for going too far is. Bismarck is very good at this. Um, later on in his career, he kind of loses sight of that, but still, you know, he he's always uh, scheming, so he's able to get out of it many times. Prussia annexed several states that fought with Austria. So once again, we're seeing them kind of uh, striving towards this unification of German states to create this one Germany. Um, and the peace still ended with, uh, ended the German Confederation. So that, that's, uh, that uh, uh, ended with the dissolution of the German Confederation. Uh, some states were forced to sign mutual defense treaties with Austria, um, obviously for uh, obviously just protection, right? Because now Prussia is this like kind of behemoth and they're kind of just bullying their way um, through all these other states. Uh, they're not yet projecting power right outside of Germany yet at this point uh, heavily, right? Now they, they, they can, but they, they're not because it's kind of this infighting going on, right? They're uh, consolidating their own power within first. Um, uh, the North German Confederation, right? This included all German states north of the main rivers. This is kind of where that main split's gonna be between uh, the areas of um, responsibility, if you wanna call it that, of, of the Austrians and the Prussians. Um, this, so all of this kind of leads into the Franco-Prussian War. Um, this is kind of like the culminating um, war of all these different conflicts. This is kind of like the culminating war. Uh, I mean, uh, well, arguably the World War One is the culminating war, but this one really kind of cemented Bismarck's power and his prowess. And um, uh, this is where people begin, uh, not begin, but people offend, uh, realized, right, staring them in the face, well, this, 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 guy is, uh, this guy is a threaded actor, right? He's, he's uh, great at what he does and he's really good at it. Um, so uh, France is still led by uh, the son of Napoleon, uh, Napoleon uh, the third. Uh, he regained the prestige. Huh? Oh, oh, sorry, his nephew. His nephew. I keep getting a uh, helmet from Moki. He he. That's his son. And then um, the um, so I keep getting that mixed up. I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, so his nephew Napoleon the third is still in power. So that war we mentioned where he was, they they were fighting Italy. He joined the war against Italy, and they fought. Um, they fought Austria and they won that war. Um, 
Uh, and I just want to mention a few quick things because it'll have some context on uh, for, for this war, the Franco-Prussian War. Some of the tactics uh, employed by Napoleon, we were talking about railroads before. Germany wasn't the only country industrializing, so was France. And so he used railroads to get marshal his troops very quickly and, and get them to a, to, uh, to a spot that the uh, Austrians didn't necessarily think he would be in, in, in that certain amount of time and took them by surprise. And essentially the whole war was just them falling back, uh, fighting this uh, tactical withdrawal, um, which uh, didn't really work out well for them. He eventually defeated them in order, barely, but he did. Um, so that's just something to mention because uh, for this war, he, he uh, fails to do that and we'll see what happens with that. Um, so he's still he's still the leader of France, right? So he's now gained that um, gained that prestige. He's gained that legitimacy from from obviously winning this war, um, as well as uh, the victories in the Crimean War and the Second Italian War of Reunification. So that that's the war, the Second Italian Reunification uh, War of Italian Reunification that he just won, and he was using railroads to marshal his forces. Um, uh, it also led him to believe that he had the best army in Europe, right? As if he forgot that the Prussians were the only thing that his his uh his uncle were, was only ever worried about, other than the British, um like for real when it came to uh, prowess on the battlefield. So he's he's already forgetting the lessons of his famous his famous uncle, right? Um, the French army, uh, in the late eighteen uh, sixties as well, uh, they began to lose that prestige, um, and the collapse of the French imperial uh. uh uh, Imperium essentially uh, in Mexico in 1867, right? They lost to Mexican irregulars, and it should have been a wake-up call uh, for France and for the uh, Napoleon, but it wasn't. But uh, its neighbors did take note, uh, and obviously the the biggest one who took note was Otto von Bismarck, um, which is not, which is this scroll, uh, is just a doom scroll for uh, France at this point, because uh, he's now noticing <laughs> that you're. Um, He's now noticing and he just essentially so if he could scroll, if he could scroll, he's now looking at all these indicators and warnings and say, hey, maybe they're not the not all that they're chalked up to be. Um, before the seven weeks war, Napoleon and Bismarck, they had negotiated the French purchase of Luxembourg uh, in return for French neutrality. Uh, when he had tried to buy the uh, Napoleon, had tried to buy the territory in 1867. Bismarck went back on his agreement. This is another trend that's beginning as well. Bismarck making agreements and going back on them, but knowing when he made the agreement in the first place, he was going to go back on it by to induce war, right? Um, yeah, and just, yeah. So it mm -hmm. should be worth noting. I mean, this this deal was important. He wanted French neutrality because, uh, like you were saying earlier, France France wanted the war between Prussia and Austria because they wanted to push on the Rhine. Right. So they weren't they weren't part of uh, any of these schemes. Right. To to make the war play out. But they wanted it nonetheless. And so when you have Bismarck negotiating with Napoleon for neutrality, I mean, that's that's why this is important. Right. France is they're going to pass up on this opportunity to push on the Rhine because they're going to get Luxembourg instead. Right. And then Bismarck goes back on it. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for that. Um, right, so this uh, led to the a big outrage, obviously, in Paris, but it didn't lead to the war. Now, uh, it, I'm, I'm unsure if Bismarck had a plan for the war then, um, but I, I'm definitely sure that he was prepared for it should it have broken out, simply because he went back on his word and he should have known that that would have been one of the, uh, one of the many consequences of that, or could have been one of the many consequences of that. In 1868, uh, the Spanish uh, revolutionaries, they overflow 
overthrow uh, Queen Isabella II, um, and they they're looking for a new monarch to replace her. Um, Prince Leopold of uh, the Hohenzollern uh, Sigmar uh, Sigmaringen Empire, um, which wasn't necessarily an empire. This is one of the. This is kind of one of the uh, uh, German states uh, or German principalities. Uh, Prince Leopold. Uh, He's also related to the ruling house in Prussia, right? So this is like a Ger uh, Prussian satellite state. And this isn't the first time we've seen a war over Spanish succession. There was a war famously called the War of the Spanish Succession. I believe there's multiple of them. Uh, famously, uh, earlier, we, um, I think Prince Eugene is a famous uh, name that comes up from that one. Uh, he fought with the Habsburg Empire um, and fought uh, famously, uh, he fought with uh, Marshal Saxe, who was also a French um, Kind of like the, I believe he was a bastard of a French noble, but he he essentially was a marshal uh, in the French Empire. So just a, a bit of context. Um, he was also related to the ruling house of Prussia. Like I said, he was Wilhelm the first cousin, right? So uh, another another quick thing to note, right? All these people, are, a lot of them are related to in some form or fashion to Queen Victoria in England, uh, right? Uh, it, but directly before the First World War, we see that there's a famous picture of all the different leaders who would then be at each other's throats just years later. In, in a single picture and dead smack in the middle of the center is Queen Victoria herself. And they're all related. Um, so, and like closely related, they're not like far cousins that they're like, that's their first cousin and things like that. Uh, the King George and King, uh, and uh, and uh, I'm losing his, I, I don't know why I just blanked, but King George and the leader and the monarch of uh, Germany, uh, then unified Germany, they were cousins. Yeah, um, like so the second, and you yeah, know what? I yeah. think I think they were even somehow related to Tsar Nicholas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they were all cousins because they played as kids. <laughs> so, like, 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 and, and they they played as kids enough that it's a uh, some historians it's a viable um this one of the reasons right for for him being so like kind of ornery was because apparently they both bullied um Wilhelm the second as kids. <laughs> now I'm not saying that's why he started the First World War or induced it. But, um, you know, that meta factored into his, uh, he had a withered hand uh, due to an accident as, as when he was younger. So who knows, you know, maybe he just, that's just kind of why I'm not, I'm not being dead serious, but, you know, some of the, it's these type of things, right. You know, uh, it, which is kind of leads to like the death of the monarchs essentially, because people don't want to go to war because of you just hate the other dude, you know? So um, with naturalism, once again, circling back to nationalism. Yeah, well, you, um, does, you mean to tell me that that the war that kills, you know, probably around 40 million people is is between three first cousins? Essentially. It's, cousins, right? it's essentially, one big family feud, pretty much. It's just one big family feud, and that's essentially what it was, um, which, is, <laughs> which is so messed up. But it's like, if you look at every other war prior to that, um, or at least prior to, you know, the the uh, 1800s that's essentially all they were right it's just family feuds i mean maybe not the american revolutionary war but you know uh just like i mentioned before we're talking about the right now we're talking about the uh, essentially a, a war over the spanish succession um which is essentially what induced the uh, franco-prussian war that's essentially what we're getting to um that all the other wars of spanish succession were literally over just that uh, when the Habsburgs, um, they fought a war over when the Habsburgs declined and who would succeed them. And the, and the reason they fight the wars, right? They're really petty wars, almost as petty as getting bullied as a kid, right? They'll cite things like ancient Salic law saying women can't be queen, right? It holds no precedent to that day, but, you know, they find a reason and, you know, but they're all related. Um, so uh, back to what um, I guess we were talking about. 
um we're talking about the 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 prelude to the uh, franco prussian war um and so the french weren't happy about the proposal of uh prince leopold right because the last thing they need is uh another prussian satellite state to you know on their southern border right um so they weren't happy about the proposal and they see berlin's power um on two sides of their border right uh, Leopold threw his candidacy after immense diplomatic pressure. He he withdrew it um, because uh, Bismarck was and and the Prussian state was uh, heavily it essentially you know they weren't threatening war directly but there was immense diplomatic pressure and so he withdrew. The French ambassador accosted Wilhelm over his cousin in the town like openly he he like walked up to him and like berated him literally um, on on Badham's, uh on July thirteenth eighteen seventy. Uh, when Bismarck heard of the encounter, uh, he he. This is what's. This is where we start to see Bismarck's his his just Bismarck. Bismarck. Yep, classic. He's Bismarck in this situation, <laughs> right? He embellished the details to make the French ambassador seem more disrespectful. So when the French guy, the French ambassador, not French guy, might have walked up and said, you know, how dare you do this, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe Bismarck. Um, I forget exactly the the because the, obviously there there is a relation, but. Bismarck embellished it so he could have cursed him out and, you know, disrespected his family and this and that. Um, but he embellished the details to make the French ambassador seem more disrespectful and Wilhelm more defensive of his royal honor, right? Which is another thing we see. He's using this kind of uptight, uptight um, attitude of the monarchs to against them, right? Um, which is ironically the uptight monarch of, of the, the son of the father of the current monarch in uh, Prussia. He's he, like he, he's always watching. He's always thinking about this stuff, and he knows the other monarchs act the same way. Um, so he's using this against them. Um, so he embellishes the details, right? And and essential as and when people of both countries read the dispatch, right, they're up in arms. But more so the French. The French are in the streets just screaming about war. Everyone wants, you know, everyone at the bar is talking about war, the tavern, whatever they call it in in French. You know, there are everyone screaming about war. Um, they were infuriated, you know, they felt like their nations more, once again, more particularly the French had been gravely disrespected and the French legislature overwhelmingly voted to declare war on Prussia on July 19th. So he, so just a quick recap, right? France withdrew back down earlier, right? They don't want war and he just tricked them into declaring war on Prussia. The whole time he wants war, the whole time he's preparing for war, the whole time he's prepared for war. Evidence yeah. of this is how fast they mobilized. Um, um, yeah, again, Bismarck, he sees nationalism on the horizon, and this is this is his chance, right? This is his chance to unite Germany under one banner, right? The Franco-Prussian War, it, I mean, it shapes a generation in both countries, and I mean, you could probably even say that it shapes Europe, right? Oh, yeah fearful of France, the Southern German states that are not part of this Northern German Confederation that hadn't already bent down to Bismarck, they formed military alliances with Prussia, right? Napoleon III, we were talking, you were talking about how confident he was in his army, right? Because of some yeah. recent victories. He was so confident in his army that he actually placed himself in command of it. Prussia, around the world, I mean, people thought Prussia was going to get their ass kicked. Right, they were really the underdog. You have some some aspects of modern war come into play once the fighting starts. Right, like we've talked about a little bit, you got breech loading cannons and rifles, which have been seen before, but the tactics are you know finally started adapting. Right, 
because they, they've been in use for a little bit and they've gotten some experience with these things. You have mass transportation as well, such as the railroads, and uh, that facilitates the mobilization of conscripts, mass mobilization that we talked about in the beginning, right, with industrialization. The Prussian military was was strong and they have the ability to quickly mobilize, uh, which France did as well, right? But Prussia, their officer corps, in addition, was very competent. Again, I mean, militarization in Prussia is always kind of a theme. I mean, it it increases after this war, right? But Prussia is a military power and it prides itself on that fact. Its officer corps, very professional, very competent. Prussia had over 350,000 men at the front lines within three weeks of the war's beginning in uh, Wessenberg. This battle, the French were outnumbered 10 to 1. The Germans attacked this fort in Wessenberg. The French didn't stand a chance, right? They got steamrolled. And the Germans, they they assaulted this garrison with 70,000 strong, right? Again, France, the French, they just completely got their asses kicked. Moving on, and this is not a long war, by the way, at the Battle of Worth, the French realized that they finally had a, they had a real fight on their hands, right? This is not going to be a cakewalk for them. And their defeat at Worth led to a completely unorganized retreat and the Germans end up seizing Alsace-Lorraine, which, you know, comes into play later, not only in World War One, but but later on as well. Um, and yeah, the, the French are in full retreat and the Germans are really just sweeping across, you know, a good half of this country. And going back to the theme of modern warfare again, at the, the Battle of, I believe it's Gravelow, um, 8,000 Prussian guardsmen are mowed down by French automatic weapons in just 20 minutes. And the reason I bring that up is because this is a little bit of a, of a taste of what's going to come in the Great War once we get into that, you know, later on in the series. Now, like I was saying, this is not a long war. Eventually in September, Napoleon III and 80,000 of his troops surrender at Sedan. A bloodless coup replaces him as a result of this because, you know, he's locked up. The French are essentially defeated at this point, though. The new post-coup government, they didn't initially give in to Bismarck's demand for Alsace-Lorraine, so the Germans laid siege to Paris. Uh, the French tried to resist, right? I know there was there was a French general who tried to um, commence this guerrilla campaign, and you know yeah. they fought the best they could, but it didn't really do a whole hell of a lot. And in early January, the Germans begin shelling the city. Again, the... the uh, siege began a couple months prior and they and they wait right and then they begin shelling right once these people are starving and they're not having a good time uh, paris surrenders on january 27th 1871 and and man that's the end of the war uh you know in total you had three million men on both sides served under arms Hundred ninety thousand people died two hundred thirty thousand wounded and this is considered to be the the last of the german wars of unification and again, yeah. talking about Bismarck, he saw nationalism on, on the horizon and he wanted to control it, right? Militarism takes a hold of the new German empire because it's consolidated. Again, this was his plan. Both politically and socially, militarism takes a hold, especially in the younger generations. You know, even uh, in Mein Kampf, Hitler remarked that as a child, he would read his dad's books on the Franco-Prussian War. And for that reason, that's that's why he fell in love with the idea of war and soldiering after reading these books. Now, 
you have uh, the new German Empire's parliament, the Reichstag. And fun fact, they're actually the only parliament in Europe where its members wore their military uniforms and sabers when they addressed the body. Huh. So, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and now, now we got the lead up to World War One. World War um, One, yeah. Yep, so... Yeah, bear with us a little bit on this. So you have the Russo-Turkish War in the 1870s, and, and that leads to Russia taking land from the Ottoman Empire. Also, Bulgaria, Romania, and Serbia gain independence as well. Western Europe is starting to grow weary of Russia's rising status on the world stage. And the conduct of Otto von Bismarck at the Congress of Berlin, which oversaw the treaty that ended this war between uh between the Russians and the Ottomans in 1878. His conduct led to a sharp uh, decline uh, towards Germany in, in the Russian public opinion, right? And fearing that he could no longer count on Russia to be an ally, Bismarck signs a defense pact with Austria-Hungary. At this point, it's not Austria, yeah. it's Austria-Hungary, right? The Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that, that becomes a dual alliance in 1879. Italy joins in 1882 after France captured Tunisia from them, and that creates the Triple Alliance. And with alliances coming into place, Germany establishes a colonial policy, which Bismarck and Wilhelm I, who is in power at this time, is uh, they refer to it as Weltpolitik. Germany was getting stronger both militarily and in terms of economic power. Again, they are heavily industrialized. Germany thought that the Triple Alliance would allow for a more aggressive foreign policy on their part, and Bismarck convened Western powers at the Berlin Conference in 1885 to decide on the colonization of Africa and Asia. Germany's claims to land in these two continents causes some alarm with Britain and France. France, excuse me, they're trying to. Uh, I'm sorry, they're they're becoming more wary of Germany. In order to counteract Germany, France and Russia sign a secret alliance in 1892, and in 1902, France signs a secret treaty of neutrality with Italy. So even though uh, Italy is part of this triple alliance, yeah, maybe they're not. They're signing secret deals, they're doing back-channeling, right? They're back-channeling yep. the back-channelers, right? So <laughs> you could call it that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So... Looking at the the time from the 1890s to the early 1900s, Germany is is moving diplomatically closer to the Ottomans as well. You know, we we brought up their war they had with Russia a couple of decades prior to this. And what did the Ottomans have? Oil, right? Oil is very important even at this time in history. And Germany builds the Berlin-Baghdad railway in 1906 to easily get access to Ottoman oil. Again, uh, what would become Iraq is under the Ottoman Empire at this time. That includes Baghdad, of course. In 1907, France, UK, and Russia sign a triple alliance of their own, and they form the Triple Entente. Germany, at this point, feels encircled by its enemies again. And this is what it refers to as a Heinrichs. Damn, I'm going to butcher this. Ankrisan, I think. I don't know. I don't speak German, but hopefully that's close. That's what they refer to as this uh, this encirclement by by what they see as their enemies, right? German military leaders wanted to mount an offensive war to break this encirclement. So this idea is, you know, fresh, or I'm sorry, it's not fresh by the time 1914 comes around, right? They've been kind of uh, toying with this for a while. 
with the alliance's forum nations plan for war and, and engage in an arms race in 1908 the ottoman empire is engulfed in revolution i believe uh the group that came to power in that are the young turks austria austria hungary excuse me takes advantage of this and they take bosnia and herzegovina from the ottoman empire Russia and Serbia opposes this move. Uh, the latter wants to unite Slavs in the Balkans, the latter being Serbia. On June 28th, 1914, Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in Sarajevo by Bosnian Serb nationalist Gavrilo Princip. Austria-Hungary accuses Serbia of carrying out the attack, and it declares war on Serbia. Russia declares war on Austria-Hungary, and Germany declares war on Russia. The web of alliances is... They're being activated, and here we are. And here we are at the beginning of the, a quick thing to note. Um, there was, so uh, I, I remember learning in school, right? It, it was kind of like uh, Gabriel Prince kills uh, Archduke Prince Ferdinand, and then it seemed like the next day, boom, the declare war in Serbia. There was actually like an interim period, long enough for the French uh, and French uh, officials to go to actually Russia. To uh, If you guys remember, um, Bodhi mentioned before that they went to Russia prior years before to sign this uh, kind of, uh, uh, signed them into, uh, into this treaty. Uh, and so now France goes after this to kind of, once again, reaffirm their uh, their commitment and the Russian commitment uh, uh, going back to them um, that, you know, you know we're st you're still in this with us should a war break out. Um, and uh, once again, the Germans or the uh, German satellites, Austria-Hungary being uh, very schemy as the French were, uh, officials were on the ship back to France. They declared war on on um, Serbia just to catch them off guard. Um, and that's, uh, if you guys want to know where I learned that from, this from William Philpott's book uh, on, on the First World War. So, but yeah, that's just an interesting thing, you know, that the scheming goes and and the smart um, smart politique, if you want to call it, uh, goes right up to the very uh, beginning of the war. Um, uh, somebody noticed that we kind of jumped around or it seems like we jumped around and didn't fill in things. That's because this is strictly for Germany pre-war. So if you're wondering why we didn't talk about the, uh, if it seems like, oh, well, why is Germany suddenly doing this? Uh, and it, it's because they're sometimes these were reactions to other things that were going on that we will cover in other things, right? So the things like the Italo-Turkish war, right, we'll cover as well. Things like the, uh, obviously the Russo-Japanese war is something that we'll cover as well. That's why Russia was kind of seeing a, a bit of a decline in the early uh, 1900s. Um, and, and so uh, we'll be covering those things. Each country, or especially the major countries, will have their own episode strictly for pre-war. And this is the German pre-war episode, just just to clarify for anyone wondering. Yeah, good stuff, man. Well, I think, uh, I think I'm pretty much set. Um, yeah, here we are, 1914. And me and you will uh, get together and figure out which uh, which country we want to do next. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it it'll probably be uh, a Great Britain or France. We'll probably bang out the you know the big ones first, okay, um, yeah. and then we'll end up we'll end up grouping the uh some of the smaller ones together. Yeah, you know, like Japan doesn't need its, its own episode for pre-war. Uh, Japan, right? If this were a World War Two uh pod, yeah, uh, yeah definitely they need a couple own, episodes, yeah. right? Yeah, if they're doing a whole lot of things pre-World War Two. But uh, this is uh Japan was uh we can definitely group them in with some other countries, so. But yeah, that's all I got for now. Yeah, yeah, me as well. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll uh, be back soon with another episode. Hope you enjoyed. Yep. Okay, I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. I know John hopes you guys did as well. We both had really uh, 
a lot of fun recording that, like I was saying in the beginning. And thank you for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram at the same name. Please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. And we are also on Substack as well. So this episode will actually be going out on Substack in Patreon first. So you guys that support us on there, you will get this uh, for probably a week before everybody else. And our Substack is analyzeeducate.substack.com. You can find all of our links below in our link tree as well if you uh, get confused. So please consider supporting us on any of those three places. Of course, we'd really appreciate it. Also, uh, give us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And we are uh, hoping to get this next episode out in the series soon. I think we're going to do Great Britain next and yeah we're gonna start getting into all our research and and we'll get that out for you guys as soon as we can but right now it's all i have for you thanks